You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. From Shakespeare to Schwartz, from Fosse to Alvin Ailey, from Sondheim to Borellis, from McNally to Faye. It happened to the greats, it still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. When lightning strikes, where you're meant to go. You can stand and shout Eureka, do whatever you like. You'll never forget the moment when lightning strikes. Hi, this is Gerald Brunner, and you're listening to When Lightning Strikes, where we talk about the tingly mic drop moments that led you to becoming an artist. Claire Barron is a playwright who has written the plays Baby Screams Miracle, Dirty Crusty, I'll Never Love Again, You Got Older, and the Pulitzer-nominated Dance Nation. Her gripping play, Shh, which has been called Illuminating and Raw, just had a very successful run at the Atlantic Theater Company. Not only did Claire write Shh, she also directed and starred in the play. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for being here. How does it feel to have just come off this epic run? I mean, here you had the trifecta of writing, shh, directing, starring in it. Yeah, I mean, it was, first of all, it was a crazy thing to do. It, I mean, I, I knew it was a big risk and I wanted to do it for specific reasons to this project that we can get into but then on top of that um our first week of rehearsal was like the week that omicron hit new york so we also had just like a crazy process of five people on our team got covid we were rehearsing whole scenes and masks you know in tech rehearsing the play in masks. so it was just a it was wilder i already knew it was going to be wild but then it ended up being like even more sort of um even even a bigger mountain to climb than I could have ever anticipated. Because it's such an intimate play. I can't even imagine you're doing rehearsals in masks. Yeah. I, I mean, what it, was, sorry. yeah, it was, it, it, there's spitting in the play, drinking in the play. Almost every scene is either a scene where um, we, we talk about the liquids in the play as like potions. Yes. Uh, this, there's some witchcraft in the play. And so like the coffee scene, the wine scene, uh, people eat pizza like so you're it's either a sex scene or you're eating something <laughs> so it's like not really not conducive to mask rehearsal <laughs> what did inspire you to act in it and direct it yeah you know this play it's 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 it may not seem that way but it's actually the most personal thing that I've ever written 
Um, I, I wrote this play after an experience of being sexually assaulted, um, in gosh, this was like back, it was kind of percolating in 2015 and it was in the moment before I had actually named it, which I think is something that probably a lot of people who have been sexually assaulted are familiar with where like something's happened to you. It was deeply fucked up. You know, it was fucked up, but you're not quite ready to say this is what happened. You're not quite ready to name it or label it. And so this whole play is kind of about someone who something like that has happened to, but she's pre-language with it. She's pre-diagnosis. She's pre-naming. And so to do this play, I wrote the play. I finally wrote the first draft of the play in the spring of 2016, right before like the whole Me Too movement. And then now to be doing it in 2022, it for me, my, for me, to put my body into the play, it for me, it is a kind of, not to be like grandiose about it at all, but it feels like a ritual that I'm doing, honestly, to kind of like deal with this trauma. So it just feels, it's kind of a play to me, but we actually, as a group, would talk about the play like as a spell, um, mm. as sort of like a big ritual we were all like making together, a ritual of like catharsis and like trying to reclaim some kind of wholeness and trying to like name trauma. Um, and so, yeah, I, some of, some of me being in it was because I also, there's a lot of intimacy in, in the play and I didn't want to ask an actor to do some of those things. And then some of it was because it felt like it changed the actual kind of meaning of the play for, for me to actually put my body into, into this text, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's so brave that you did that. Yeah. It was scary. It was scarier than I will say, like having done it, it was, it was harder and scarier than I, than I thought. You're right. There are transformations in the play. There's, uh, you're right. There's potions, there's rituals, as you say, did this experience change you of being it? I think that, um, interesting I think I will know more in six months something something happened to me about 10 days into performances and there's one scene where I'm listening to two women talk about sex in a pizza shop and they're they're talking about sexual acts that are technically consensual where there was technically consent but something violative happened a lot of stuff around like condoms and like lying about sexual health and stuff like that and I I started getting like really emotional out of nowhere during that scene. And it was interesting because I was like, is this going to like, I think most actors know there's an experience where like, you'll be really emotional on a certain day, but you're not going to necessarily recreate that every single performance. But for me, I just like couldn't turn it off, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I couldn't actually get through the play without crying, even if I was actively trying not to cry. So there was a moment when I was like, is this helping? <laughs> or, am I just getting like, or am I just getting like re-triggered every night? And I kind of feel like I'm like, I'm so grateful for this opportunity. I'm so grateful that the Atlantic let me take a risk and, and be in it mm-hmm. and make it in this unconventional way. But it did kind of dig up a lot of stuff in me. And I, I don't quite know where the dust will settle um, when it's really like in the rear view. Yeah. yeah. Cause it's still so raw. I remember that scene so well. And I remember looking at you and seeing you re- and all the deliberate kind of the way you were listening was, 
was just as fascinating as the conversation. Yeah, that there, that you were invested and that you were also weren't you picking at the crumbs and eating yeah, and yeah. it was it was very deliberate and fascinating, you know, to see your response. Yeah, almost like you were in it, but you were not in it. If that makes any sense as an audience member. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So, I was just going to say, I, I yeah. also think that's so true about sexual assault is and yeah. how people who are sexually assaulted, you often realize what happened to you by listening to someone else, you know, because yeah. it's so it's so much easier to have clarity with someone else's story or be like, oh, that's what happened. And so I feel like that's something for me that's really true, just in my experience as a human, like you often like learn about your own experience. I think that's why it's so powerful when yeah. people have been sexually assaulted, share their story, right? Because it actually like, a, it's like a ripple in a pond, like it ends up like affecting like a lot of people and how they, how they see what happened to them in their life. And it's, it's messy and it's complicated. You're right. Because it's never, I know from my own experience, it's never cut and dry. And you think did did it happen? Did it not happen? You know, trying to make sense of it. It's really, really complex. And it's great that you're really um, bringing it to light, you know, and sharing. Uh, let's, let's talk about your lightning strikes moment when you knew you had to be an artist. Oh, gosh. You know, I, I had a few. Um, I grew up in a rural community in Washington state called Wenatchee, Washington. It's also yeah. where the playwright Heidi Shrek is from. And her mom was my drama teacher. So there's like yes. a little New York Wenatchee connection. <laughs> um, Heidi did what um, what the constitution means yes. to me among many other beautiful plays. Gosh. But um, <laughs> so the thing that was cool about where I'm from is that it's three hours, it's not the suburbs, it's three hours away from any city. So it's three hours away from Seattle. It's three hours away from Spokane. So I think when you have, it's, it's, it's 30,000 people. So it's like a rural city. And I think spots like that, they really develop their own culture. And so there was actually just like a thriving art scene. We would do high school musicals and they were all just like the Wizard of Oz or, um, you know, Cinderella, like very family friendly, but like there would be, you know, huge, huge audiences and the um, auditorium and, and the, the musicals would make so much money because I think it was like a thousand seat auditorium and then they charge like 10 bucks a ticket or something like that and so we would have these musicals that um, the budget of the, the high school musical would be like forty thousand dollars because the money just like went back into the department you know and so like when I I played the Wicked Witch of the West um, I played the Wicked Witch of the West and I had like a, a, someone came in from Iowa to teach me how to fly. I flew above the stage. I had oh pyrotechnics. Gosh. Like I had, <laughs> I, I would like run through clouds of smoke and fire, shoot fire from my finger. So I was, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I had a lot of fun doing theater as like a kid, but I don't know that I thought about it as a job, you know, um, or like as a life pursuit. I just knew the thing that I knew from doing theater as a kid and a high schooler was that I felt really free in theater. I felt free to be myself. I felt really empowered. I felt emotionally free. And I was almost kind of just like addicted to those to those feelings. Um, but 
I don't know. I don't know that I really, um, I want, I was interested in writing, but it wasn't until really I was 25. I had been pursuing life as an actor quite unsuccessfully, like waking up at 5am, um, going to the equity building to like audition for a show that was already cast, but I didn't know. And like doing that kind of thing, doing little shows around the city and, um, everyone was kind of like obsessed with Annie Baker at the time. Um, And she was teaching a three week course in Florida of all places at the Atlantic center for the arts. And you only needed 10 pages to apply. So I went back into my college files and I pulled 10 pages from a play I wrote that I thought were good. And I got into this program and there's only like six of us in it. And we got to like, we would have like an hour long class with Annie every day. And she was so inspirational. She was like using a lot of the techniques of Mac Wellman because she went to Brooklyn College and he taught at Brooklyn College a lot of stuff like eavesdropping and like just ways mm. to make. Um, I think before that, when I tried to write plays, I was trying to write like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Like I was trying to like <laughs> write some like epic, you know, like thing. And I just couldn't find my voice. And Annie, more than anything, Annie and a, and a woman named Deb Margolin, who's a wonderful yeah. um, playwright <sighs> performer, they both like yeah. really helped me find my voice. And once I found my voice in my writing, once it felt like it was me and not like me trying to be someone else, I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to have to do this for the rest of my life. You know, because it, again, it's like the word that comes to mind is, and I hope this is answering your question, but the word that comes to mind is like freedom. Like I just felt so incredibly free and like addicted to the feeling of being free. That's extraordinary. But I just want to go back a little bit more because um, that troupe that you were in with uh, Sherry Shrek. Yeah. Is that yeah. called the short Shakespearean? Short Shakespearean, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so you were doing Shakespearean plays? There. Yeah, that was like when I was in middle school, um, <laughs> Sherry, Heidi's mother, Sherry Shrek, Heidi Shrek's mother, founded this Shakespeare troupe for Heidi that by the time I yeah. got there had been going on for like 15 years or something like that. And um, we would do a Shakespeare play every summer. And most people started when they were like four or five. And I didn't start until I was a sixth grader. Oh. And I remember, I remember it was like humiliating because my first summer I had to be a fairy um, but all the, all the other fairies, cause it was my first year, you know, you start at the yeah. bottom and you work your way up. All the other fairies were like four or five. So I was like, like, if there's a row of fairies, they're all like literally, you know, two feet tall. And then I'm like a woman going through puberty or a girl going through puberty, you know, like two heads taller than everyone else. Um, so it was a very humble beginning, but, um, it was so much fun. And I, before I graduated, I got to play Rosalind, which was it's such um, an incredible part mm. to get to play when you're like 13 years old, you know, to get to be yeah. like a 13 year old Rosalind. It's just like, it's just so fun, you know. And then you went to Yale, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Now, did you go to Yale with the intent of being an actor or did you want, or what was the, yeah, did you did you have a, an idea in mind of what you would study? Yeah, I mean, what you really yeah. wanted to pursue. I um, yeah. I think I didn't know what I wanted to do at Yale and wanted to keep myself open. But I think uh-huh. something that kind of happened that was a little bit of a bummer is that I was really into science. 
I'm from a rural area, grew up hiking, grew up with lot. We had like 15 animals in the house, like that kind of thing. And but the problem is like when you go to Yale and you come from like a rural public high school in the maths and the sciences, you're so far behind, like all the kids from New York and LA and Boston who are all in like prep schools that it's actually like really hard in some ways I feel like, cause those were the two, my two passions were like theater and then like wildlife biology. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just like <laughs> loved animals. And in some ways I feel like it got decided for me cause I got to Yale and I was like, I could immediately take all these like interesting liberal arts classes that were just like 12 people in a room, discussion, books, reading, or I could take like the lowest level chemistry class with like 400 people you know, like it was just yeah. so much less sexy. You know what I'm saying? Because I wasn't, I wasn't at a level that I could take the cool math and science classes. I would have had to like really catch up to my peers. And so the decision kind of like happened to me by default. And by the end of Yale, like I knew I wanted to do theater. Um, that's also where Deb Margolin was my teacher. And she is, she, I mean, she's a, I love her writing mm -hmm. so much. I love her acting, but she's also just like a truly, kind of like once in a generation teacher. I know she's inspired so many people. Like she just, yeah. she was like radically, hugely transformative to my life. Um, Deb believes that anyone can be a writer. I hope I am accurately sharing her beliefs. And also she talks about the theater of desire to write, write from a place of desire. Um, what do you need to say on stage today? If you were to like die tomorrow, like what would you want to say? And there's something that's like really big about that question is like, oh, how do you ever know? But there's also something just like so clarifying about that question. It's just like, that's all you have to do is think about like, I don't know, just yeah. make it, make it a short time frame. Like all I have is today. What do I want to say? And all of a sudden for me, at least words come out. Um, it's like, this is what I want to say. This is what I know today to share, you know? And so I've, I've used the things I use the things that Deb taught me as an 18 year old, I've used them like every writing project I've ever, ever done in my entire life. And when you got to New York that you also, I know you said you were thriving as an actress, right? I mean, you, you had some part, I mean, I'm not saying that you were <laughs> you know, cast in a thousand things, but you were working, right? Didn't you work with the ensemble, studio theater, and yeah, other I was. places? And, I, yeah. I, I like that interpretation, and I'll take it. I <laughs> felt very frustrated as an actor because yeah. I think so, I think so many young people can relate to this. You show up in New York City, and you you just don't know how to get in the room. You know what I yeah. mean? You're like you're like I'm here. I have so much passion, so many thoughts. Yeah. I wanna I wanna do it. And you're just like, how do I get in there? Like, how do I actually, like, even getting an audition in New York, if you don't have agents, is hard. Even yeah. if you do have agents, it's hard. So yes. I, I just remember feel the, the um, I did get to work on some amazing projects. I got to work particularly with Ensemble Studio Theater. Um, but that was actually, I only got to do that once I became a playwright. See, I've always used, uh, I've always used what? playwriting to leverage my acting. <laughs> like I get in, <laughs> I get in, I get in through the back door, but um, I get in through the back door, but I worked with Target Margin, which is one of my favorite companies. That's, that's where I met our mutual friend, Porva Beatty, who's a wonderful actress who then yeah. later was in one of my plays. Um, Dance and Nation. Yeah. Dance Nation. Yeah. Uh. And so um I did a little bit, but, but there was a lot of waiting to have a two minute audition. There was a lot of not knowing how, like, you know, even something like I wanted, 
it was interesting to me when I became a writer, I found it so much easier to get in the door. So I would be able to like get a theater to read my script that I couldn't like get an audition for, you know what I mean? So I could Mm -hmm. get like club thumb to like read my script, but I couldn't get like an audition as an actor for club thumb, just to use one theater as an example that I like was really excited about. And like, I really wanted to work at club thumb, but I don't know if that's true for everyone or if that's just true that, you know, just true for my experience. Um, I'm not sure. What were some of the early plays that you wrote with Ellie Baker? You know, in, yeah, uh, I wrote this play that yeah. was never done. I wrote this play that was never done called "A Boy Puts a Girl in a Cage with a Dog," and the dog <sighs> killed the girl. And it was <sighs> about it was about. Um, I actually love this little play. It's like a string. It, it feels like it wants to be more of an opera than a play. It's it was about a brother who was babysitting his two sisters, and. Um, he gets mad at the little one and puts her like in the kennel with the dog and the dog. And it's really dark, like killing her, which I think I found was, I don't know. It's very like grotesque. I don't remember where that came from, but then the, it's the older sister's dog and the dog is going to be put down and she ends up giving it away to this woman in the town. And so it was kind of about this weird the woman doesn't know what the dog's done. It's, it was like this weird relationship between this girl and this woman. And it was a strange, dark, dark play, but um, it never had an audience. But I, but I, I still think there was something like alive in it maybe, or that, that like changed something in my writing. And then I wrote that with Annie. That's the play that I wrote kind of like with her mentorship. And then she helped me get into Young Blood, which is a playwrights group in New York City for playwrights under 30. Um, she like recommended me. And that group changed my life because it gave me an identity as a writer. That's the other thing I think being young is like, it's really scary to call yourself a writer. You know, you feel like embarrassed. You're like, oh, no one's ever done my play. I'm not a writer. Like, but then when you join a group like Young Blood, it's like, oh, we're, it's a playwrights group. Like we're playwrights. And so I started identifying as a playwright and there were so many opportunities to like write short plays and do them for an audience and all this kind of stuff. So that, that was an amazing place for me at 25 to just like incubate and get to like experiment. And in fact, there's parts of Shush, um, the Shush play that I just did um, that came out of a young blood brunch. I, I made a piece with a ritual in it. And then I ended up like lifting that ritual from that piece and putting it in the play. So I still steal from that part of my life, like all the time, really. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What I also love is that 
you well you stretch me as a writer as as a as an artist because your plays aren't always linear you know they don't have a very a very structured narrative that you could find you know that you really you you color so far outside the lines but and and I, but there's something so I know it's been said visceral about your work and you that you can still follow it and you can feel it and it's palpable can you talk about that that you're, you you that you don't you know that there's not always a, a very a specific kind of structure which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I would say that my there there is a structure to my plays, but there it's more um, yeah. like emotional structures ah. rather than rather than like storytelling structures. So and 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 they're definitely that makes them like not for everyone. In fact, I think at the I didn't read all the reviews for this play, but like I looked at one of them and there was one comment on the bottom that made me laugh. Where it was like, can anyone tell me where I can find a traditional play in this town? <laughs> like, I just want to see like a traditional play. And I, 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 you know, I have, I, I hear that person. Sometimes you just want to go see like a story that, you know, has like conflict and resolution and like all this kind of stuff. But um, for me, the struct, my, I think my plays are very moody. I, I'm, this is also mm -hmm. like, I'm bipolar. So I think I'm very driven by like, mood and like atmosphere and like the sort of like the temperature of something but then I build the plays um I build the plays with structures but sometimes people aren't like aware of the structures so like to use a couple examples I have this play called You Got Older and it's about a, a woman in her 30s home taking care of her father with um cancer and then she has these sexual fantasies with a cowboy and so the first part of the play it's all two-hander scenes it's like the woman and the dad, the woman and the cowboy, the woman and the dad, the woman and the cowboy. And then in the middle, when he has his surgery, all the siblings descend. And there's like this 20 minute party scene in the middle of the play where they're all in the hospital scene and they're eating things and they're joking around and they're laughing. And they're, it's in a hospital that's like a big party scene. And then they like all go away and you're back to just the woman and her dad. And so like, to me, that's like a satisfying structure to, to have these really lonely scenes with just two people then a big party and then you're back to being just like with two people so that's like the structure of the play kind of with with yeah. with it's like a it's a relay race it's like you start with two characters a and b character a oh. goes away character c comes then you're with characters b and c character b goes away character d comes mm -hmm. then you're with character c and d then two brand new characters come. It's E and F. So it's kind of like a relay race where like you're losing someone each scene and you're constantly like, I, I think I'm also like interested in kind of like troubling the idea of a protagonist sometimes. And so, yeah, like I said, it's, it isn't for everyone and that's okay. But, but I, I do, I, I do think there's a way you could look at them and be like, oh, there isn't structure. But in my brain, there actually are like quite rigid structures of like how I'm making them. They're just a little bit like under the skin, I think, rather than like, I think a traditional dramatic structure where generally you're building to a big moment of conflict that then gets resolved. Um, yeah. They're deeply powerful. Uh, what was it like for you to direct yourself? Oh, to direct me? Well, so yeah. a, couple, a couple things. I mean, 
Directing, first of all, was so much fun. It's something that I've wanted to do for so long. People really discourage writer directors. And I would just say to anyone who's curious in it, I, after doing it, it was so hard, (laughs) but I would actually like really recommend it. I think it's like, it's I also write very, um, I write like almost like performance art and events. Like even with my play dance nation, I was writing all these dance sequences and like, you know, smearing period blood on the face. And so it's hard to then not be able to like direct those moments because like mm-hmm. kind of as you've written them, even though like Lee Sunday Evans, the director on Dance Nation, like blew my mind. I loved working with her, but like, I think the way that I write, because it is so visceral, it can be hard to then emotionally have to kind of like sit back a little yeah. bit. And so, because you're, you're, I'm kind of like know exactly how I want it in my head. And so this, this play is my most visceral play. And so I wanted to do it. And then, yeah, it was actually pretty easy to direct myself because I just knew what I wanted. I just knew what I, I just knew what I wanted for that character. And it's all written to my own vocal cadence and my own way of speaking. But then I also had two incredible helpers. I had Agnes Grinsky, who's one of my oldest friends, amazing writer, who was our dramaturg, but was really just like an advisor on the project. And um, May Truhaft Ali, who is our, uh, associate director and she was also like amazing and so insightful and so um I I um I had their eyes on me and they were definitely like telling me when it was going off like too much this way too much that way come back here is this okay is that okay um and it was great to have that external eye kind of like pushing me back and forth in the right direction did you ever at any point, want to put yourself, cast yourself in Dance Nation? No. no. So I, this is no. Oh, I this is actually the, the first play that I've wanted to um, be in. Um, but I mean, I think it'd be fun to be in Dance Nation. I just don't know who I would. I don't know who I would be. Maybe uh, Sophia. Sophia's uh, kind of like the one who always has all the little quips, and she's the one who gets yes. her period and like puts her period. Okay. I could see myself being Sophia. Um, <laughs> But, but um, maybe, maybe I'll, maybe I'll be so blessed and lucky that maybe when I'm like, you know, 30 years in the future, some random theater will do the play and I'll get to be in it as a character <laughs> at a different age. Um, and, well, which comes to also, I love how, especially in Dance Nation and sh- how you you play with ages that it's not linear that there, there are women, you know, who are what in their thirties, forties, fifties playing girls in their teens. And then in this play, you have sisters who um, are, are you know, ostensibly not, you know, um, close in age. I mean, in reality or not close in age. And, can you talk about that? The choice of, you know, yeah, um, putting yeah. people who are not. Yeah, I love that. It comes from mm-hmm. two places. One is it is something I've just literally stolen from Target Margin Theater. So uh-huh. my really good friend, David Herskovitz, um, works at Target Margin. He's always cast a little bit like, I don't want to say, say age blind, but like just creatively in terms of age and also creatively in terms of, um gender too um and so I remember I was in a production of The Tempest with him but I remember like doing a workshop of The Tempest and 
so I ended up playing Miranda in The Tempest when I was like quite a young woman. But I remember seeing this incredible actor named Mary Neufeld, um, who I don't know her exact age, but she she's older and she was playing Miranda in the workshop. And it was she was such a beautiful Miranda. I mean, it was just like a it was just like beautiful to see her be Miranda and like fall in love with Ferdinand. I actually preferred it to my own performance. <laughs> and, and I so I was seeing stuff like that with David, where I was like watching, you know, a Shakespeare scene where where Miranda's being played by someone in their 50s. And I'm like, this scene is so alive, it's so clear, it's so emotionally resonant. And it's so exciting. And it's weirdly like more emotionally resonant and exciting than seeing like, you know, a 23-year-old ingenue who just graduated grad school do it in a way. And I, yeah. I can't quite like articulate why, but it just was, you know. And David, for David, I think a lot about it is memory. So it's the idea that we can kind yeah. of play, we can kind of play anything that we remember. So like in that instance, Mary playing Miranda, it's like her memory of being in love at that age, you know. Yeah. So that was hugely influential. And then the other thing was like in my little short fledged acting career, I only ever played teenage girls. Mm -hmm. And as I got on to 30, you know, I was like, wait, I'm 30 years old. I'm still playing 15. Why? And I felt weird about it. I felt like it was because I was short. I was petite. I have big eyes. And then I was like, well, that's actually like so fucked up because um, being a teenage girl has nothing to do with having big eyes and being petite like those are literally (laughs) nothing to do with being a teenager so like why are these random markers of my body signifying youth in the theater I just thought it was dumb and um and so I wanted to play with that a little and just and look for people who I felt like in the in the case of Dance Nation I wanted to look for people who I felt like um had the soul of a 13 year old like just something about their something about their energy, their personality felt like close to 13. Um, and that was kind of the directive with which we cast the, the play. Um, and likewise, in sh- like Connie Shulman, who plays my yes. sister, I just feel like we feel like sisters. We're not, we're, we, do. You know, we're, we are, we, there are like years between us, but we, we feel, feel like sisters. And in that play, like that character's a witch. So yes, our sort of like internal logic is that we're actually, in the play we're 35 and 37 but what we joke about is we're actually like 535 and 537 and that she looks like she looks and I look like we look we're only two years apart but like um but yeah that's kind of so there is a logic at least there's an internal logic I should say I love that well I love seeing you dance together you know and then you I you could tell that you had such a deep a deep collection the two of you yeah, that you yeah. could be sisters, you know, it was and that you really cared for each other. Yeah, she yeah. was incredible yeah. to work with, like just such such a gift to work with her, so generous and so talented. And her voice. Oh my yeah. goodness. Hearing her, you know, I remember her her nails against the coffee cup. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, there's a, a really wonderful um essay you wrote. Uh can we talk about your essay not writing? that you published in in August of 2020, where you talked about your break from writing and your success as a playwright in your 20s. And you say, our need for success makes taking breaks really scary. Our obsession with young success makes people go crazy 
and feel less valuable as they get older. And then you go on to say, my prayer for us is simply that we're not afraid to get old. My prayer for us is simply that we value the things we learn with time. That as much as we celebrate and listen to young people rising up, we also make space for people who have been living before us, who've been working before us, that we do not forget the labor that has already been done. I just think that's gorgeous. Oh, <laughs> Can you talk about that? What it what inspired you to share such a personal time in your life? And that's so beautiful that you did that. Uh, I mean, some of that is just because I have so many teachers whose work I value that I want to go to the theater and like see their work. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I want to see Deb Margolin at the Signature Theater. Like that's who I want to see and who I want to learn from. But some of it was also from being in the rat race. And like, I, I'm, I got really lucky. Like I, I wanted to be an actor. I started playwriting and then I had a really successful play when I was like 28. And I just, I, I don't know how it's going to change with COVID. I think maybe it's changed. I'm not, I can't tell, but I was just feeling this weird pressure. I'm, I'm 36 now. I just turned 36. So watching people in their late twenties, and early 30s feel this insane pressure to get successful in a specific year in order for their voice to matter <laughs> felt so crazy. And this idea of being like a young writer who's like successful and sexy, I know it felt like so, it felt so toxic, particularly because the means of success in our industry right now are so toxic. Like yeah. what, where does success come from? It comes from mostly a New York Times review. That's one person's opinion about your work. Yeah. So you, it, that that just starts to be like a blood sport, like literally a blood sport of like, there's one person that we've w randomly made king who based on their mood, if they're grumpy the night the see, they see the play. And also I firmly believe that not all work is for everyone. So like shh yeah. is not for everyone. There are people that it is not for, you know? And so like, if you're someone who gets that kind of person with their butt in the seat, why does their one singular opinion then affect like your career? And that is, I think, and I, I could be wrong, but I do feel like we were essentially using the New York Times as a little kingmaker. I love voices and I love singular voices and there's particular playwrights that I do think are really special, but I just think we need to move away from the singularity into the community. I want, I want like a quilt of playwrights, like a fabric of playwrights, oh, quilt. you know, like yeah. where, where like you're going to see people's bodies of work. You're seeing work in relation to other work. You're seeing playwrights in conversation with each other. And it's less about like this blood sport thing of like, who's winning the game who's on top this season, yeah. like who's going to get nominated for the most awards or whatever <laughs> it is. And I hope it's not just me that feels this way. Cause maybe, um, maybe I, maybe I'm the only sick um, one, but I, I feel, <laughs> I feel it in the community and, and I really want to, I really want it to change. I want it to change. Um, and I think it's probably an economic problem about like, having affordable theater in the city and selling tickets and like how we can yeah. do that. But I, um, anyway, that's not exactly what the essay is about, but like, I was just feeling almost like a frothy amount of like toxic pressure on young writers at the same time that I was feeling like we weren't taking care of, 
the people who came before us mm-hmm. and like and we were it was sort of like all about the new flavor of the month and not actually about mm-hmm. like an artist who's having a career through their 20s 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s and 80s I mean there's there's so few playwrights who are given the privilege of getting to have that kind of career and I just think that there should be more um like I said I want to go to the signature and see a season of Deb Margolin I want to like yeah. that's what I that's what I want Oh, that's sorry. Right. Sorry, that was no. a rant. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, no, I love it. It's like I hear you about the mosaic. You know that it should be more of a a mosaic. That it shouldn't be just one flavor. What got you back to writing? Well, you know what's so crazy is I actually haven't written a play. I mean, this is I'm in yeah. a I'm in a painful moment because the reason I'm so passionate is because I feel like I'm walking away from the theater, and there's a lot that's why I'm like upset about it. And maybe I'll come back later. I don't know. I have, I have another play next year that I'll do, but like, I I haven't written a a play since I haven't written a play since 2016. And the thing that is taking, I, the last thing I wrote that was similar to a play and that it was personal and passionate was like a movie script that I'm hoping to direct. And I feel myself like going into a new medium because I feel like for me in the theater, I, I know that I have an audience in New York city but my audience is in is not people who are paying $80 for tickets. My audience is mm. people who are paying like $20 for tickets. But it's very difficult in New York City to have a show with $20 tickets that can actually like run for two months. They're they're wow. they're normally like short kind of and there's equity rules that make that be and financial reasons that make that be. And so I think I'm mm. feeling like it was so interesting with sh- like not not there's obviously like um there's obviously like older people who really respond to the play, but like the nights that we had student groups, we had a a group from Syracuse college students. I've, I've never been in a room with my work being done that had that kind of response to the work. Like these students were just so like, they were just every tiny twist and turn of the play. They were like present. And therefore they were listening. They were, they were understanding all the crevices. And I'm just going, why is this one night? Why is this not 40 nights? Because it's not like there's not other students. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, I don't understand why the ratio is that that's one night. That's, you know, that's three nights of the run and not like 40 nights of the run. And I don't, I don't know all the math. I don't know all the economics and like um, the Atlantic job, the Atlantic did an amazing job of getting people into our show. Like we had yeah. full nights every run and, and I loved all our audiences, but like, I just, I feel, yeah, I think like so many of us both in the theaters and in, and the artists feel like confused about just the economic model and like what the future looks like, um, without sort of like major government support for the arts. Yeah. Well, it's like, dare I say, it's pricey real estate in New York, you know, that we don't have access to the theater, to as many theaters and we can't, it's hard to take risks, you know, if you don't have, you know, that many theaters where, you know, you can be non-commercial, you know, and it's a really frustrating problem. I hear you. What, Oh, I was going to say, but what scares yeah. me is I see my friends going into film and TV because yeah. because we can make work there that's accessible. 
we can yeah. make work there that like anyone can just like download to their laptop and watch it, you know? And yeah. so I don't know. I know that thing about losing playwrights to film and TV has been something people have been afraid of for a long time and it hasn't happened. But I feel a rumbling among my peer group of just like yeah. a certain exhaustion of, yes. of wanting to make work that is seen by its intended audience. Yes. And how frustrating, how frustrating it is to not have the theater always be a, lot, a viable option. Um, yeah. Is that, so what is, what is the piece that you're doing next year? Can you talk it's, about it? Yeah. I mean, it's totally different. I'm doing, it's, it's a, it's, um, I, it's not something original. It's a Chekhov adaptation of three sisters. Oh. I'm writing it for Sam Gold there's nice. a bunch of lovely movie stars in the production. <laughs> so it's like very different, very different. It's going to be amazing. I mean, everyone involved is so kind and so nice, but like it's very different vibes than, but um, I'm Who's really excited it? about it. Can you Greta say? Ger yeah, yeah. Oscar Isaac's in it. Um, oh. Greta Gerwig's in it. Steve Buscemi's in it. Gosh. Quincy yeah. Tyler Bernstein is in it. Um, yeah, lovely, lovely people. Matt Mayer's in it. Um, amazing people. Uh, but yeah, very like, I mean, I mean, Sam and my, I think our goal is to make the play feel immediate and, and personal and real, but like, it's definitely like a, for me doing an adaptation is like a, a new kind of working to do versus like, you know, writing from like autobiography. Uh, I never can say that word right. Autobiography. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are you updating it? Are you modeling it? Make it modern or? You know, I did one pass on it. And it's not like it's, I think we're thinking of it a little bit like a ghost, a ghost play. So I don't, it's kind of like it's, it was supposed to happen May 2020. And then COVID happened. And now it's like two years later. So I'm, in some ways, I think it's a little bit like up in the air where it's going to land in terms of our plans for it pre COVID. And then our plans for it post COVID. So I, I definitely want to like revisit what I did and see, you know, if I feel differently about it, if I want to change, change things about it. So when you're not writing plays, what are you doing? What are you, what are you writing? Are you writing for film and TV? Yeah, I've, I've, I've written for many TV shows that all were canceled. <laughs> uh, I have, I have like very bad, I have like very bad film and TV luck. Um, but I feel very lucky and blessed because it's how I make a living. Um, and then I, uh, I just wrote this movie that is really exciting for me because it's the first thing I've wrote as a screenwriter that really feels like mine. And so I'm really excited about that. And then I'm, I'm working on um, the adaptation of Say Nothing, which is actually a book about um, the, the troubles in Northern Ireland. It's kind of like an epic historical, uh -huh. Um, book following these two sisters from when they were like uh, 17 and 19 until in, into their 50s and um, that's sort of like a very it's not my project I'm just a writer on the project but it, it's very satisfying to work on it's very satisfying to work on I'm curious how you got from young blood to being a full-time writer you know how how that transition happened to when you yeah. knew you could support yourself as a writer and survive. Yeah, that's such a good thrive. question. I feel like it's important to talk like really boldly about that kind of stuff. So in, yeah. because I think it's like, otherwise it can be so mysterious and it's like, well, yeah, how did that happen? 
I um I got an agent off of my first show, Baby Screams Miracle, which was a Club Thumb Summer Works. Um, a bunch of agents didn't want me. And then my agent, Rachel Viola, was still an assistant at the time. And she was like, let's work together. And she's become like one of my best friends and advocates. Um, but I didn't have any TV and film opportunities off of that show. And then a year later, I had this play called You Got Older at Here Art Center. Um, and it's funny, it actually didn't get a good review in the New York Times, but everyone kind of, it was a, a, a fortunate moment in my life where the whole kind of arts community, I felt like kind of rallied around the play and protected me and um, celebrated the play. And that sample, that play became like my TV film sample. And I, I was able to actually, between the buzz of that production and that actual script sample, I was able to start getting like, TV film gigs, basically both like little deals for me to write something. And then also like in a room, like working on a TV show. So for me, it really came down to like having the right play with the right amount of like energy around it. And then also having like the right script sample that could be like passed around. And you got older has like a bunch of fantastical stuff in it, but it also has like a bunch of naturalistic like dialogue it's very emotional it's like family centric so it it worked as a kind of calling card um for me in a way that like my other plays didn't um yeah what's some of the best writing guidance you've received you talked about some extraordinary mentors is there something that you really that lives with you yeah i think the the biggest things that I think about are the thing about writing from desire, which is just like, mm. what do I need to say? And it can be embarrassing. It can be silly. It can be superficial. It can be, it can be anything, but just like, I think, I think it's deadly when you start writing based on what you think is cool or what you think is like expected of you. I think, I think you have to be like, even if it's not autobiographical, I think it has to come from your secret places and like, your shame, your desire, the thing that you need to like say. But then the other thing I I um think about a lot is a Mac Wellman thing, which is that it's okay, like make it bad, like actively try to make it bad rather than actively trying to make it good because um because uh uh the something about going towards the bad, I think frees you, relaxes you. And then actually what it's like a magic trick. Actually what comes out is better. Um, I think trying too hard is deadly for writing, unfortunately, which feels so unfair. (laughs) I also, along those lines, I also like, I think it's great to write impulsively, write on your phone, on the subway, write, you know, for 10 minutes on a little scrap of paper when you're inspired, like, I try to do a lot of that kind of stuff rather than being like, today, I'm going to write for six hours. I try to kind of like, allow inspiration to come when it comes go on a long walk and like, write in a little notebook on a random bench for like 10 minutes and then be done. That kind of stuff all like really helps me. Um, The other thing I do a lot is sometimes when I get stuck in a scene, you know, when you're like writing, 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 and then it gets gnarly and stuck. A lot of times I'll be like, wait, am I done? Is this scene done? And more times than not, it actually is just done. Like you can actually just cut Mm. away. (laughs) I mean, So those are just some of the things that come to mind that I personally use all the time, all the time to help me write. 
Is there a play or something you're aching to adapt or something or um, a subject matter you're just dying to delve into? Oh gosh. Um, my, my, the movie I'm working on is about mental health stuff, which is something that I've been trying to find a way to um, write about for a long time. I keep kind of thinking about like writing a musical about monogamy. I, I've been non-monogamous for since I was 25. So for 11 years and I'm just very, and I'm 36 and I'm, you know, it's that a lot of people are coupling up or what I'm just very interested in like partnership love. I, I just recently got in a relationship for the first time, um, in eight years. And I was talking to a lot of people about their relationships and I couldn't believe I would ask these questions and people would like have, um, such different answers. Like one of the questions I would always ask is like, is it normal to be annoyed by your partner? Um, and people have such different opinions about, you know, like some people are like, if you're annoyed by your partner in the first year, like it's, a it's a red flag, it's over. And then other people, it's like, <laughs> excuse me, you're on the phone with them and you're like, is it normal to be annoyed by your partner? And you suddenly hear them like whisper and they're like, um, can I call you back? Like, just give me five minutes. <laughs> Um, so it's just, I mean, that's just a silly example, but I'm just kind of, I, in this moment, I'm a little bit, I would like to do something, especially after doing the shush on sexual assault, which was like so heavy. I, uh. I would like to like to do something that's like about maybe love and partnership commitment, monogamy and all that kind of stuff. And that's a little more frothy and fun. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to, see more of your work and I'm so grateful to you Claire for coming on the show it's been such a thank you for having me I really appreciate it I really appreciate it well have a great day and thank you again thank you still happens every day when lightning strikes it's the moment you know the theme song was written by Tom McGovern this episode was edited by Kyle Moore and the talent was booked by Anna Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.